0: We'd open this morning to Colossians, the book of Colossians Paul's epistle in chapter 1 we're going to juice that a little bit. We're still stuck with uh, reflecting on what God did for us when he saved us. Have you been reading your Bible? Do you know the stories of God's works through Israel? Do you know that he set up the ritual system of worship in Israel so that they would remember? What is Israel constantly being called to look back to? Passover. Every year they could have a Passover. The redemption of the nation out of slavery at the Red Sea. The redemption work. And they're supposed to always look back to that. If you're wondering where in the Bible you could read about that, that's Exodus chapters one through 14, the story, which is history of God delivering Israel from the house of slavery, from bondage to Pharaoh, to Egypt. And the climax of the story is Exodus 14, the great Red Sea deliverance. And the worship of Israel was designed to look back to God's deliverance, God's great work And remember who we serve and what he's done for us and and who we are because of that. That's what God called Israel to do. He's constantly calling them in their worship to remembrance. That's what this study is. Taking the cue from that theme in the Old Testament of remembrance of God's great deliverance. We're talking about the things that the scriptures tell us are true for us who have believed. What's the value in that? Well, first of all, it isn't sales. sales. We're not selling the gospel to those who haven't. Listen carefully, please, if you haven't trusted in Christ. The mission here is not to sell you on the benefits. I would love to go over that with you. I would love to share my testimony that I was once lost and now I've been found. I was separated from God and without hope in the world, and now I have eternal life because of God's grace to me. And that message needs to be ready. You need to be ready with that on your lips, beloved, all the time. You don't have to get into somebody's worldview to explain yours. And you don't have to um, figure out what's their hangup to have common ground with someone and say, hey, I know that um, we all come from somewhere. Let me tell you, God saved me because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's a testimony that is absolutely true. And it's very personal. And you carry that. You carry that in you. You have that. And you can be ready to say that Jesus died for my sins. And he rose from the dead to give me eternal life. And then you can be so bold as to say in the Scripture, say he died for your sins too. But the point is, I'm not selling to someone that doesn't know Christ what, uh, what you can get. It's true. It's very true. Well, there's no very true. It's either true or it's not. It's like very unique. No, we're, we're saying look back at what you have. Because you're going through whatever you're going through. You're going through the things of life. And since we are not enjoying the kingdom, that means broken government and human affairs. That means broken relationships. That means broken lives. That means, as we're educating the children, we looking at all the different fast factors of life. You know what will solve the problems of our, of our culture's education? If they would just learn something. If they could just learn, then, then they would be able to, to work and, and get along and get out of poverty or crime or whatever. Education will solve the problem. Have you seen the numbers of what educators are guilty of dealing with kids and crime? I mean, I'm not just for one thing, I'm not beating up on anybody. I'm saying all the structures are broken, and every place that you think you find a solution that isn't the gospel, it isn't one. Because we've got a problem, and it's sin, and it infects every institution. It infects every organization. And it infects every local church. But the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated sin. He's conquered death at the cross and the kingdom is coming and will be righteous in its governance. What I'm saying to you is that you and I have the hardships that we have in life because of sin, because of our own sin, sin of others, because God is testing us and putting us through our paces. And one of the great strengtheners for your spiritual life is to think about who you are from what God has said, to think about what you have and to pull out the patents of nobility, to pull out the treasure chest of your inheritance and say, I have this. This is who I am because of what God has done. And today we're talking about the fact that we have a heavenly citizenship, that we are citizens of this coming kingdom that begins when Jesus comes back to earth and continues throughout all eternity into the new heavens and new earth. Some of you might be aware, hopefully all of you are aware, that the Revelation 20, Chapter 20 says that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ. It says it six times. A thousand years, six times. It only needs to say it once, but if it says it six times, I guess I'll really believe it, right? This thousand-year reign of Christ we call the millennium because we speak Latin and mille is the thousand, and so the millennium. The Greek speakers were Kilias. They believed in the Kilo, thousand. They believed in the thousand-year reign. But that is not the end of things. That's the last phase of fallen, sinful human history. And it ends in rebellion against Christ, if you read Revelation 20. But then comes the final judgment and the new heavens and new earth. And the kingdom of Christ does not end with the conclusion of the thousand-year reign. The fallenness of man ends. The judgment of wickedness ends. And then there is this eternal phase we call the eternal state. The Bible doesn't say much about it. In other words, at the end of the scriptures, you have the end of the beginning. This coming kingdom is ours, as we read, and we are citizens of it now. Even though, as I insist, you don't really have the kingdom in place. You don't have it in any any sense in your experience until the king is present ruling. So we have the kingdom in abeyance. The image that comes to mind is Strider in the first of the, the three volumes of Tolkien, the, the, the Lord of the Rings, the heir to the king, to the throne of all the kingdoms, the one that will rule all of them, is a ranger, they call him. He's a man preparing for the coming of the kingdom, and that's the last volume of The Return of the King. But he's, a, he's an unknown. He's, he's in kind of a clandestine role. He's not glorified, and he's not exalted, and he's not ruling But he is doing those things that are in preparation for the coming kingdom. That's where we are. We're in an anticipation of that kingdom. When we talk about citizenship, it makes us think fondly of our citizenship as Americans here in the United States. And this message is intended for the audience that God has given us. You're Americans for the most part. And if you're not Americans, you live here. And if you're watching us online and you're not Americans, then you can get a nice insight into how Americans think about themselves about their nation, about their citizenship. What was originally the idea was that we would do a better thing than Rome and its republic had done. We would extend citizenship to every man. It wouldn't be a matter uh, to vote to be part of this republic. It wouldn't be a matter of just having property. It wouldn't be a matter of just being aristocratic. We thought because of the declaration that all men are created equal, that this would be something that would be more broadly experienced. And um, it's an interesting experiment how that's going. So, what is citizenship? What does it mean? What does it convey? Well, ultimately, in my view, American citizenship means participation in its government. It means that you are a voting member of this body politic. That's the idea. And it's a huge privilege to be that. But it's not as much of a privilege now as it used to be. And what I mean by that is there was a time, there was a time when if you were an American citizen abroad, People did not mess with you. You were respected because there was the might of the, of the sleeping giant behind you. We had a big stick diplomacy. We had a massive navy, and we weren't picking fights necessarily, but we were ending them. And there was this sense that we don't mess with Americans. We had our consulates in ivory, and we still do. But that, that's kind of diminished. We've kind of lost a lot of that. There was the apology tours for existing in the early 2000s. 2008 through 16 or so. Uh, there was uh, there's there's the insanity of the last 10 years and it's been it's been absolutely ridiculous. And uh, and then the most horrible thing uh, just as an American citizen that's happened, the the blight on our honor, on our on our nation of what we did to our allies in Afghanistan and setting up a subculture there and putting all that treasure, all that tax money that we faithfully, patriotically sent in to pay our taxes, to put an entire army worth of material there, to set up law and order, to to, to, to build uh, a modern state as best you know and you can with a tribal culture. You're not going to force this culture. But we, but we did all that and then we just abandoned our allies. We abandoned them to this Stone Age people, this Taliban thing. And it's just almost the exact opposite of how our country started. When you think about that, it's such a shame. It's such an embarrassment. It's such a great time in, in American history to embrace your heavenly citizenship, right? Because it's embarrassing and it's, it's, it's absurd. We've given billions of dollars worth of military equipment to people that culturally, if I could say that culturally, have it as their objective to push Israel into the sea. We have equipped the enemy of our only ally in that region with, with, and I'm not just talking about Black Hawk helicopters, I'm talking about all the material, logistics necessary to build to, to field an army, a massive modern army. And we don't talk about it it's not on your radar, It's not reported. We don't know. Uh, how, how can this be? How did this happen? Well? political processes. We make promises and there's an election. New new administration comes in with a new set of uh, perspectives and uh, plays to its base or whatever to gain more power. And then we're off to the races and we destroy any credibility we have. Why would anyone ever trust Americans to do what we said? Why would any people, especially in the Middle East, how many women have been tortured to death because they had the temerity to be college students or whatever? And it's, it's, it's unthinkable. Well, let me remind you of some of your history. You know, this guy, you Navy people, you salts know this guy, Stephen Decatur Jr. You probably don't know much about Stephen Decatur Sr. because Jr. was such a hero. He was such a flash in the pan, uh, meteoric figure in the second generation of our country's history. Sr. was a Commodore in the Revolutionary War, or excuse me, the War for American Independence. Since there was a French Revolution, and that was such a different affair, I'll call our war a War for Independence. But Stephen Decatur Jr. was the first, they they consider him the first great war hero after the the War for American Independence. You know the story of Decatur? He's the youngest man in American history to be promoted to captain as a Navy captain uh, at age 25. And if you're doing your quick math up there, correct me if I'm wrong, but six years later, he's dead. 31 years old. Stephen Decatur is sort of a little snapshot of our fledgling country, of who we were. The people that were children and teenagers as George Washington was making his exploits. Stephen Decatur, the son of a Shipbuilder of a ultimately um, a a businessman who was a military hero in shipping, who himself went to sea as a child and never got the salt out of his system, who was daring, courageous, and really smart about making decisions in the moment. The greatest exploit that put him on the map of American history with uh, in his time where everyone was celebrating him um, happened in the First Barbary War, which was the first test of our country uh, after war with Britain. The way we established independence from Great Britain is we filled in an army and we fought them. And we did partisan warfare and we made it so expensive and undesirable for them to put more into the war that we finally beat them at Yorktown, ultimately. Ultimately. After 1776 and 10 failures and one little Christmas naive success, we stuck it out, and it shows you what um, a few settlers, a ragtag group of committed individuals can do if they're on their own home turf. But we did it with military affairs, and God backed our move. Well, the first test of American metal was the Barbary Wars. You had your third president, Thomas Jefferson, who did not like, as a Republican-minded person, classic republic, he did not like the idea of a standing army because a standing army can subdue the people and take away their freedoms. And there was always this battle of federalism versus anti-federalism and a strong central government versus a strong distributed government and and that kind of concern. And in 1803, the Barbary War was to the point that... um, Stephen Decatur was the man for the hour. We had back and forth about do we pay these pirate states that send state-funded pirate terrorists out to harass our shipping in the Mediterranean and to take our prisoners captive and then cause, and then require these ransoms. These little tin horn dictatorships are taking tribute from European powers so that they won't harass their ships. So if they see your flag, your ship's flag, they won't board your ship and take your people and enslave them. And the Americans are faced with a question, are we going to join the Europeans and just pay these idiots off, these little nothing countries with no, no real power to speak of, or are we going to uh, say no and stop it? And you might know the story. Ultimately, with the first and second Barbary Wars, we said no. The bar- Barbary states are these, Morocco, Algeria, uh, Tunisia, and what was called Tripoli or Tripolitania, which is part of Libya, these, these, these uh, North African countries. And they're all Muslim, and they're all uh, little Muslim dictatorships that are all f- paying service and tribute to the, the, great, uh, the, the great power in Constantinople. And they're, they're, it's a fundraising campaign. They, this is how we, we get money. We do terroristic activity and piracy, and they're pirate states. And on principle, the Americans, they really dickered around with this way too much. Well, we don't want a standing army. We don't need a, a big navy. The Barbary Wars gave us our navy. We said we can't have commerce internationally unless we have a naval force that's military, and then we have the guns to shut this down. And ultimately, I'm over-summarizing, but ultimately we won. We shut them down, and we didn't pay tribute to these little... Uh, dictatorships anymore, and they didn't take our people hostage, and people didn't mess with Americans because we built a navy. And the great uh, Stephen Decatur is your first hero of this. So there are there several key stars in what happened in the first Barbary War, but one of them had bad luck, and he, he ran his ship, the great frigate, um, the Philadelphia, built by Stephen Decatur's father overse- overseeing it in Philadelphia. It, he ran it aground on unknown, uncharted, unsounded rocks, it was just what the world would call bad luck. And now the biggest ship that we have is a Tripoli, Tripolitanian terrorist ship to be used by pirates to further harass our shipping. So the Americans did and what needed to be done. They said, we have to burn it. So the Tripoli people put it under the nose of the Bashaw, the, the, the Mufti in, in Tripoli, And they covered it with four guns, and it was this scuttled ship that they were going to rebuild and go reuse, and it was going to be their great trophy. So the Americans had this daring plan to go burn it in place, in enemy territory, in their waters, right under their nose. And they picked the man who said, please let me go, let me go, let me go. It was this scrappy guy named Stephen Decatur who went with two ships. He was in command of one of them, the Intrepid, which was a ship that he had he had taken from the from the Tripoli, Tripoli people, Trip, Tripolitanians, they called him. He had conquered the ship, he reflagged it, and uh, he used it to sail into uh, their waters to go burn the ship. And they had this whole plan. And of course, as you know, plans fail. The very beginning of a, of a plan is that it fails. Sorry about that, fidgeting over him. Um, the very beginning of a plan is that it fails. Uh, from the very beginning of, of its execution. And you don't get to do what you plan to do because something happens. They're going to sail in with two ships and one of them is going slow and it doesn't make it. And the timing is important. You have to come in by cover of night and they're sailing wind driven ships and they have to do all this adjustment. And so the the decision is, do we go in without the the partnership and do this ourselves or do we wait and scrap the, mess, the, the, the event? And Stephen Decatur, who believes that One of us is as good as two of them in hand-to-hand combat, says we're going to take the ship, and it's manned by Tripoli pirates. They go board the ship. He jumps across into the rigging of the other ship. They um, scare all the pirates away after killing 18 of them, and then they burn the ship down just to Cater and his crew. Lord Nelson, the great uh, admiral in England, said this is the greatest military feat of the age what Stephen Decatur did in burning down the Philadelphia right in the middle of what should have been waters that were well guarded, covered, and and, uh, patrolled by the Tripolitanians. And this is the beginning of his prominence when word finally gets back to Washington that we have a victory and the victor is named Stephen Decatur. He is the most famous man in town. Of course, everyone's heard of President Stephen Decatur, right? No, he dies at 31. He's a naval commissioner, He's been promoted and promoted and promoted. They don't have enough jobs to give this guy to promote him. They're just waiting around until he's old enough to be president. That's one way to look at his life. He's the most famous man in Washington. He's celebrated and feted everywhere he goes. And America loves its heroes. That's why George Washington was our first president. He's right in the line. He should have been president. But he wasn't. Because the British said, we want our citizens that you have conscripted into your army. You've got prisoners of war that are our Navy, and we want them back. We have them by name, and they're on this ship, and we know it. It's called the Chesapeake Leopard Affair. The HMS Leopard chased down the USS Chesapeake, and they, they subdued it and boarded it. And Commodore Barron was on the ship. He was the commander of the ship, and he had to surrender his ship to this British ship. And they went and took these supposedly conscripted British men, and they, they took them back to Britain. The problem is these were American citizens who before had been conscripted, three of them conscripted to serve the British Navy. They were enslaved by the British. That's what they would do. That's why a lot of war happened. And the early spirit of America is we don't t- pay tribute to these tin horns. We already whipped the British. We're not doing this. And Baron, Captain Baron, surrendered uh, his, these men to the British. He was disarmed by them and harassed and embarrassed. And he was relieved from command and, and forfeited any, they, they barred him from serving in the Navy for five years after this, because it was such a horrific defeat uh, on the heels in 1807, on the heels of some great victories that we had won in the Barbary Wars. Stephen Decatur is part of the, uh, the, the situation because uh, for various reasons, and he and all the people that are very popular and very successful in the U.S. Navy hate Commodore Barron. He comes back five years or six years later to join the, the Navy again and reestablish his career after his suspension. And Stephen Decatur denounces him publicly for his failure in the leopard, um, Chesapeake Leopard Affair. American citizens were re-enslaved by British, and, it, and we just let it happen. And th- the thing about being in command is when you fail, when the organization fails, we fail. And Stephen Decatur hated Barron, who had been his commander earlier, And he denounced him publicly. And you know what happened, right? Commodore Barron said, we're going to have a duel because you've dishonored me publicly. And just like Alexander Hamilton, who died before he could do so much more than he he did, died too young after being such a bright light in our history. 51-year-old Barron shoots successfully and kills 31-year-old Stephen Decatur and shuts down the most successful military life of his age. Because of honor. Of course, we uh, found a way to put an end to this idiotic practice of dueling for honor. But there's something about it, isn't it, that speaks to our early heritage, to our early American pluck. You're not going to say that to me without consequence. Right? However you come down on dueling, on my public honor and all that, what we can see is there's a sin problem and it kills us. And I love our history and I love the exploits and the story and the family and just the whole thing about Stephen Decatur. But what a waste. What an amazing hero. What a great guy. What a a useful person as he developed. This is the beginning of his career. He says, we're going to go for broke and take this ship down. When he burns the, the Philadelphia and becomes this great Medal of Honor sort of winner. What a tragedy that he's not moving the chessboard pieces around at 50 and 60. That he's not one of these seasoned heroes that uh, has learned humility as he's been successful and, and making these good decisions. This is our history. This is where we've come from. And we love our history, but we see what a, what a stupid thing that we're going to have a duel because, because one man criticizes another publicly. So, so we succeed and we fail. And that's the story of American history. Stephen Decatur's, uh, Birth is, a, is a, 10 years before George Washington's death, and his death is too soon. And uh, with John Paul Jones, some consider him kind of the, the one of the founding fathers of the US Navy. Again, we have it because we said no to the Barbary pirate states. So what am I saying? I have a lot to be proud of in my na- nation's history. I'm glad that we had Stephen Decatur. But I'm scandalized that he died in a stupid duel at 31 years old. Same with Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, by the way, who's the vice president when he shoots Hamilton. And the legend is that Hamilton points his pistol in the air because he thinks it's absurd and he, we're just form- going through formalities. We can both miss. Burr doesn't point in the air. He shoots him in the heart. Or wherever he hit him, that killed him, but he died from it. Our history is good and bad, and we have a lot to be thankful for. As we prayed earlier, we thank God for our heritage and our history. But our history is plagued with sin and failure, and even the bright lights, they're not perfect. And there were probably a lot of legitimate criticisms of Stephen Decatur in his day, as you might imagine. Anybody that's ever worked for someone that got prominence or fame, he said, well, I could tell you some more of the story than the press. But in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that we're citizens of heaven. And my prayer for you is much like the Apostle Paul's prayer for them. He says, for this reason, for the reason of their faith and uh, their advancement in the gospel... Since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The reason I want to do a little American history with you and share some of the, the, neat, some of the neat parts of the, the reason we fly the stars and stripes and love our country. The reason I want to share with you is because as much as we love our country, in its history, and its heritage. We're, we're courageous people that take care of our citizens. When our citizens become enslaved, we're critics of that. When, uh, when our citizens are enslaved, we build a navy and stop it. Right? I love that. That's how it should be. That's how it was. As much as we could rally around that thought and rejoice in it after the flesh, all that's within the domain of darkness. None of those ships are going to go into the kingdom. Nothing we build in this life, beloved, is of eternal consequence unless God is building it. And I'm not suggesting that we should be unpatriotic or that we shouldn't be ambitious or protect our citizens. I'm saying there's a higher calling for believers in Christ than which nation you belong to or how much you appreciate the freedoms that God has given us, which we've recognized in our Bill of Rights, namely the Second Amendment, right? We have many things to rejoice in after the flesh, but a lifetime of being free followed by a death in separation from God is a wasted opportunity, an eternal waste. We're talking about the fact that we've been transferred. We belong to God's enemy, and now we belong to God. And that is something for you to ponder, to reflect on, to ruminate on, to rejoice in every day of your life. You belong to the creator and his coming kingdom. In Colossians 1.9, it says, For this reason also, for on the day we heard of it, we do not cease to pray and to ask. What he's praying is for the Colossians, and here's what his prayer includes. Now, sometimes we talk about how we should give thanks before we make our requests, This is in terms of a theological priority because God has already acted. He's already done the things he's done. We should thank him for those things before we start asking for more things. But that's thematic. In this case, Paul cuts right to what he prays for these people. And I want you to know that as I read Paul and I consider myself under his tutelage, I hope we all do, I pray this for myself and for you and for my family. I want this for you and for your kids. I want what Paul wants for the Colossians to happen to you. And what this means is that we're being called. What this prayer includes is radical. It has nothing to do with this present darkness that is passing away. And it is only attained through access to God's word. This is the stuff. And it's for you who've been transferred. But here's what he asks. We pray that you be filled with the full knowledge, the epignosis of his will, of his philema, what God wants. And what this doesn't mean is that you know the decisions that he's already made in advance that you're going to make. That's not what it means. When he says that you would become fully aware, gain this full knowledge, is epignosis, knowledge is gnosis, epignosis is beyond that. It's, it's a spiritual insight that God provides through his revelation that you would, through this special knowledge that we have in God's word, come to want what God wants, to be aware of his desires, of what he wants. Can you in any confidence, believers in Christ, say you know what God wants? See, that's why it's so vital to be in, your, in the word because he tells us this prayer is what he wants. For example, do you know what God wants? He wants for you to let go of whatever is holding you back from what he's describing here. And it might be that you're just so hung up on on entertainment in various forms that you just don't have time to be serious about your spiritual life. From the day on which we heard it, we don't cease to pray that you'll be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, I don't believe Paul means that if you meditate long enough, God will occur things to you that he didn't tell you in his word. What I think he means is that because he's given us the prophetic word and because we've been inculcated in it because not we've just read through, but we've studied deeply because we've gone after the word because we're going after God because God says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. So we come to his word with an expectation. God, I want to know you. This isn't God. This is the revelation of him. But we're so saturated with God's word that we know what he wants. And furthermore, we have God's wisdom. We have the knowledge of what God wants. With all wisdom, the skill to live our life, to be pleasing before God. That's what wisdom is. It's skill always, but this wisdom is the skill of Proverbs, to live your life before God with spiritual discernment, spiritual understanding. This is only attained through the walk by the Spirit in the Word of God. This is only attained if we're being filled by the Spirit in Ephesians uh, 5.18 with the Word of Christ richly dwelling within us in Colossians 3.16. So he's describing the normative spiritual life. It's saturated with God's word. You know what God wants, not because it's what you want. Now, this is what we'll do. We'll say, well, I'm supposed to know what God wants, uh, so I'll just assume it's whatever I want. I know what God's will is. This occurred to me. God wants us to go in debt to buy uh, to purchase whatever necessary skills and tools and resources to build and improve this, this building because it needs something. It needs some help. So God wants us to go in debt. I just happen to know it. And so um, I even know what bank he wants us to use. will never be uttered with any seriousness from this pulpit, right? Because you, you don't know that. You don't know those things. In fact, we think he probably wants us to not go into debt. We have a commitment up front not to enter into debt where we as a body of believers are obligated to uh, institutions that are not that owe nothing to anyone except love, right? So, so we're not going to go in debt. We're just going to be in debt to the Lord to serve him. And, uh, and we're going to tra- trust in him and wait on him for the resources. By the way, while we're on this illustration, there is a building team. It's working on a two-year program of exploration and planning to decide what can be done or should be done with this structure. And something must be done. Something needs to be done. And I'll tell you up front, I have very modest desires. I want to be able to sit- seat the house here. Those that come, I want to be able to have a fellowship meal with you in this building on the same level. I'd like for there to be bathrooms that you can use on that same level without any kind of wheelchair issues. And I'd like for there to be a place to warm food that we could feed in that fellowship space. That's the modest thing that we're going for, just so you, you kind of know. And I think God wants us to do those things because not necessarily, I mean, you can't, well, he's going to, God said, make a kitchen. I think it's just that he wants us to fellowship together, and that's the most efficient way we could do it. But you know what? Short of that, we don't have that this summer. I don't have that when, the, when, the, when, when it warms up. Kind of not a winter this year. We'll put a tent out back. We're going to fellowship without the new building, without any, any structure. We've got to figure out bathrooms. It's tough. It's not accessible for people that have accessibility issues. We, we're working these things. We've been working them for the whole time I've been here. Don't get distracted on the illustration, though. God didn't tell me that he wants me to put in three bathroom stalls per sex on this level so that you can just use the restroom and, and, and not have to go through the maze and, and, and bump into each other and play, play dodge the church people and spill coffee on each other as you're headed to the bathroom through the maze. He didn't tell me he wanted to do that. He told me that fellowship is important and caring for one another is important. So we need to be in wisdom, making decisions that enable us to do that, set conditions. And that's wisdom. So we make our decisions with what he said for the things that he puts in front of us. That's how you have to do things. By the way, building programs are pressure. There's always pressure. Do you feel pressure now? Some of you are like, nope, I don't feel any pressure. There's pressure. What's the pressure? Handicap access. Pardon the expression. I don't know what they call it now. I don't care. Handicap access. We don't have it. We don't, have, we don't know how to do it. We can carry you to the restroom, basically. That's what we've got. And we've got a lot of strong lads. <laughs> we have pressure. Well, it's been, the, it's been this way for 200 years. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. They, just, they, they, dug, they dug bathrooms out back. We had, we had outhouses. You could have as many outhouses as you need. If we're going to go that route, I'm for no. <laughs> but pastor, we have a way we can get three stalls per sex if that's what you want. We're under pressure. When we build, by the way, what we'll do, very likely, is we'll tell the church regularly what we're doing. We have a building fund. It still exists. It's always been there. We'll have the building fund and we'll say this is what it is. This is how much is in it. We'll do probably monthly or bi-monthly, bi-weekly building update reports. This is where this, the thing is. I promise we won't put a, 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 a thermometer uh, <laughs> poster outside that we, we increase the temperature as, as we're raising funds. But, hey, there's an ongoing fundraiser for this. Please be in prayer. We tell God and we ask, we ask God and we tell his people. And you just please make this a matter of prayer and God provide. And that's how we're going to do it. And when And we'll have it all designed where there are phases. And when phase one is funded... If we voted to do the whole thing, when phase one is funded, we'll do phase one. That's how we'll do it. And then we'll have pressure. What's the pressure? But here's what the pressure isn't. The pressure isn't the pastor saying, people, let's go. And I won't. We're not going to build like that. It's just, it's, take your time. God's got it. We'll trust him. And the other pressure is not that we have a mortgage payment coming and we've got to handle that. We're not going to be pressured that way. The pressure is? There's more we could do. We all just feel it, and that'll be it. I feel pressure right now with just with our steeple and our superstructure up there. The town thinks this building is the, is the anchor, the, the architectural anchor of the Preston Historic District. We got some work to do. And I like that witness. Hey, we are. We're the, we're the architectural anchor of the Preston Historic District. <laughs> Let's talk about the cornerstone and, uh, and the, the foundation which is laid, which is Christ. And that's what it's for. That's what the whole thing is for. What am I saying? This is an example of wisdom. This is an example of how you start with principle with what God said he wants. You know what his heart is. God wants us to care about one another and spend time with each other and have a good witness to the community. So we start making decisions in that interest. And then you've got to be very careful in your wisdom to prioritize. So I've taken a little time today to explain this by way of illustration. Some of you will not hear anything but the building plan. But there's a so that that you have this wisdom and this discernment so that you walk worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. This is the follow through phase where the student of God's word that isn't the doer of the word starts to really need to, to listen up. Don't skip leg day. Right? You you've you got your arms, you got your arm work out, but you don't do the legs. No, you got to be a balanced thing. You get in the word and then you do the word. And that's where verse 10 says, because it's not just that we are pleased because we've had some instruction from God. And I'm, if you're the kind of person that wants to hear the word and is hungry to know, I'm just like you. I have that. And so I've got to go hit leg day next. I've gotten the word. Now I got to do it. And that's the putting it into practice to please the Lord in all respects and every good work, bearing fruit and growing into the full knowledge of God. With all power being strengthened according to his glorious might. This requires enablement. The wisdom that God provides and then the walk by wisdom requires constant power, constant enablement. Until all endurance, or my Bible translates steadfastness, hupomone, and long-suffering, you could translate that also patience, but macro, that's long or big. Thumia, passion or suffering. Long-suffering, that's, that's the etymology of that word with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who qualified us for the portion of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So how does Paul pray? Just look at this thing really quick. It's such a neat prayer. Incorporate this into your prayer life. And if you want, you know, if you're like, I don't want to pray about this for me, Pray about this for me. I want this. I want what Paul's asking for. Listen to it. We do not cease to pray for you. And here's what we ask. Now watch it because I didn't see this until I put it into the whole context. You know, the leaves don't make any sense until you see the whole tree. So here we go. That, this is the prayer, that you be filled with the full knowledge of his wisdom and all wisdom, uh, of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And then you have to interpret the participle so that you walk. We saw that, that you'd be filled with knowledge so that you walk worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Again, being filled with his knowledge of his will and having spiritual discernment and wisdom and not walking is a huge waste. It's Solomon with all the wisdom and no execution. But we're not done because he's going to further say bearing fruit and you have to interpret the participle, the result of the walk that is filled with this wisdom is bearing fruit in every good work and growing, bearing fruit and growing into the full knowledge of God. This growth that he talks about, Oxano here, this growth is the growth that comes from time and the word that is then lived out and experienced as you put it to practice. And knowing him is something that requires both steps. Listen to what I'm saying. You don't really know him if you've just listened You've been through the class, but you haven't put it into practice. The knowing of God is a personal relational thing that requires our action. Growing into the epinosis, the full knowledge of God. And the way this is possible is by means of being strengthened with all power, according to his power, his glorious might. So he brings the power through us. It's not my strength. The Apostle Paul, at the height of his spiritual endeavors, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, is told that Jesus Christ is most powerful. His expression is purest when we're weakest. My power is made complete in your weakness, Jesus tells the Apostle Paul, who's asking for relief, but he needs long-suffering and endurance. By means of being strengthened with all power according to God's might, unto endurance and long-suffering with joy. See, where this is going is hardship. Where the spiritual life takes you is rejoicing despite the trouble. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says, from chains. Again, I say rejoice. This is the grit part of the spiritual life. And again, it sets you apart. It makes you a radical person in the way you think. You can't look left and right in this or any culture and find it. You can't say what's the consensus even of evangelical Christendom and find this. What is everybody else doing? Well, let's do that. Let's, get, let, let's make a B. There's no making a B on this. That's an F. You have to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and in the, in the inspiration of the Spirit say, what has the Apostle Paul given us? That is our lifestyle. While you're giving thanks to the Father... By means of being strengthened with his power unto all endurance while giving thanks to the Father. Who's giving thanks? See, I thought when I first read in English it was Paul. This is all one sentence. He's talking about the disciples he's writing to giving thanks to the Father. While giving thanks to the Father who has qualified all of us for the portion of the inheritance of the saints in the light. That's quite a prayer. This is a prayer for Christian success. And the only way you can know success is God's personal evaluation. What does he think success is? That's why we started with knowing his will, knowing what he wants. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? Remember the story? Is that, is that Luke 15, the three things that are lost? I hope it is. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> In that story, there are two brothers. The one that's faithful and stays with his dad and the one that says, give me my inheritance, whatever it would have been, let me go, and he goes and wastes it. Jesus is teaching through this parable a judgment against the Pharisees, against the religious crowd. They're the son that stays, the faithful son. But in that parable of that which is lost and regained, The portrait is of God the Father. The self-righteous, legalistic, religious crowd thinks that they have the heart of God because they're self-righteous. They think what I think is right is what God thinks is right. I have God's heart and we're not tolerating and we're not accepting and we're whatever the thing is. And what what happened was the the foolish brother went and forfeited all of the father's wealth, half of his wealth, and profligate, loose living. And he wasted all that And then he came home and asked to be a slave. Let me be a slave in your household because the slaves eat better. And the father, upon hearing the son's confession, I have sinned, I failed, I did it wrong. Upon confession, the father instantly forgives his son, wraps his cloak around him, gives him the signet ring, and says, slaughter the fatted calf for my son was dead and he's become alive again. And the whole point of this parable is the brother that did it right, that stayed with dad, but doesn't really think like dad, gets a bad attitude that his father is forgiving. The reason I mention this parable is because sometimes we think we know God and we don't. Sometimes we think we have his heart, or we have his attitude, or we know what his will is or his desires and we don't. And this is what happened when Jesus came is the people that knew the scriptures the best, theoretically the Pharisees, they were the farthest from the heart of God. They didn't know God. They didn't know the scriptures. They had read it, but they weren't listening somehow. They didn't know that God is waiting to lavish blessing on his children. They didn't know that he wants you to come home. They didn't understand that he's the loving father who sees his son coming home from a long way off. It says he sees his son from a long way off. Do you know why? Because the longing father is waiting and he's watching and he has a place to observe the farthest possible distance from his home. How far out can we see on the approaching road to see if he ever comes home? The dad in the prodigal son is waiting for his son to come home because he loves him, because he wants the very highest and best. And in that sense, he's the same as the shepherd. who leaves the flock, the 99, and goes after the one. He's the same as the woman who loses her coin and and, uh, finds it, cleans the whole house and finds it, and the thing is, is returned to her. He's the same because his son has been restored to him. This is the heart of your creator. This is what he's like. And if you have a self-righteous spirit and you want to see the wicked suffer or something like that, you're missing the heart of your creator. Did I say the wicked won't suffer? No. There's an eternal torment for those separated from God. Ultimately, as a gentleman, God gives us what we want. You want eternal separation from your creator? That's a lake burning with sulfur. right? But the attitude of your creator is that he wants to know what his desires are. He wants that boy to come home, and he's looking for him. The parable is a judgment on the self-righteous uh, other brother, older brother. And you're supposed to feel uncomfortable. It's cringy when you read it. We rejoice with the angels of heaven on the recovery of the brother. We don't turn up our nose and say, yeah, but he did and he did and, and he did. We rejoice. Does this mean that we, uh, we welcome him in with his, uh, with his friends and bring the brothel to the household? We do not. Absolutely do not. He was, a, he was in a far country, but we have to let him go. And yet with God the Father, we're going to wait and see him coming back from a long way off because we're always hoping, we're always anticipating, we're always desiring for him to come home. That's the attitude of your creator. It doesn't endorse, tolerate, certify sins, and destroys you in every case. But it wants you to come home. And that is the attitude when you read about having The full knowledge of his desire, of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Brothers and sisters, that's compassion. That's a desire for the salvation of the lost. That's a desire for the recovery of those brothers and sisters who are walking in darkness. And I mean, they're believers, but they're forfeiting their lives. That's the attitude of your creator. And to adopt that attitude is be groomed and prepared for what's coming. What is also true of God the Father? He rescued us from the power or the authority, the domain of darkness, the exousia. The word generally translated authority. Authority is the power to make decisions. The Father who rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the Basilea, the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the one verse people would point to and say, see, the kingdom is in your heart or it's just being a believer or something. No, the kingdom has a context and it's developed through the Old Testament and the New Testament agrees with it. His kingdom is not of this present world, this world system administered by Satan, but it will be an earthly kingdom. Everything Abraham was promised, he's going to receive in resurrection and so will David in resurrection. The kingdom is coming, but right now you and I belong to it, but what's it like? We long for these children to come home. We long for God's sheep to enter his sheepfold. We want to be part of that enterprise, and that is what we're training for. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We carry with us ambassadorship to people that we would love to see be transferred into this kingdom as well. And understand it's warfare. It's warfare. Our country is born in war. It's sustained through war. It's how it is with nations in this present darkness. You're in a spiritual battle, too. You have a spiritual mission that far exceeds anything going on in the flesh. And I know we don't think that way. Oh, this is the real stuff, life and death stuff. Hey, this is eternal life and eternal death, and the battle is real and it's every day. If you belong to a foreign power like the citizenship you have in heaven and you've been transferred from that domain of darkness to be part of the kingdom of God's beloved son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then you are an enemy, wherever you find yourself on planet earth, to the existing administration. And your mission runs exactly counter to his mission. The enemy of God is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And his desire is, as they say, misery loves company. He wants to make sure that as many human beings can join him in eternal separation from God as possible. That's why he's deceived the nations and there's a veil over their heart when they hear the gospel. But we have a mission because we belong to this coming kingdom. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel message and the ministry you've committed to us. That thinking of our position in Christ and our being, uh, belonging to his coming kingdom in our phase now of anticipation gives us this ambassador role. We're recruiting for those who also will be part of this eternal kingdom. Ruling with your son, Father, thank you that you've designed us for eternal significance, for an eternal purpose, that it's far greater than anything we could know from reason or observation, but you've given it to us by way of revelation, and it so accords with everything we see if we're careful with our observations and our reason. Father, help us see these things as you've presented them, that we have this eternal citizenship, and let us take it seriously, even as we function as citizens in this nation. In a lesser sense, we are citizens here, and we have a role, and it's salt and light, but it's because we're citizens of this coming kingdom. Father, help us keep our priorities straight and be about your mission. There are many possible missions, and very often they're in competition for limited resources like our time, our energy, our affection. Father, let us embrace this work you've given us to represent Jesus Christ with those simple words, that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, To give me eternal life. Father, let us live it. We ask in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. Amen.